Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Puntang damang sangkang namasami. So tonight I want to speak about uh, about wisdom and uh, you know what is wisdom and what and how to develop it. And uh, again, start off with a with one of the poems from Matthew's book. And tonight I'm going to read the poem from Sona, Sona Bikuni. I brought ten sons into the world. I thought that would have been enough. But when my body could no longer conceive, I lost heart. Giving birth and raising children was all I knew. Then a nun told me, how beings come into the world and bring other beings into the world based on countless causes and conditions. It was a lot to take in. I stayed with her and learned to raise a mind that didn't conceive. Yes, my sisters, soon all the little pieces that make up this body will go on to make up other bodies. See this for yourself, then ask me why I shaved my head. <laughs> and you know, here she says, uh, and I learned to raise a mind that didn't conceive. So you know, a mind which isn't carried away into stories, a mind which is, uh, you know, able to stay open and uh, a mind, you know, which is is uh, is free from being, you know, under the influence of the tendencies, you know, which send the mind off in all different ways in order to contract and feel some kind of ground under its not existing feet, and uh, and in this case, it's it's. Uh, expressed as a, as a mind that doesn't conceive, a mind free from attachment. And, uh, and you know, we have been speaking about uh, the wisdom training in the Noble Eightfold Path with right view and uh, right thought or right intention. And, uh, you know, which enables us to see the way things truly are and through that seeing, you know, suffering ends. And uh, there's a sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya which is uh, speaking about how to develop wisdom. And it speaks about four things when developed and practiced a lot inclined towards the growth of wisdom. You know, and, and wisdom is considered a natural phenomenon if we are putting 
certain causes and conditions in place, then it will automatically grow just like a plant. You know, if you put the right causes and conditions in place, a plant will grow. And the same with wisdom, it's not uh, a body of knowledge, you know, which comes from uh, hearing a lot or reading a lot, but it's, it's kind of uh, the result of having instructions and then really using them in your daily life. And then the result of that is wisdom, it's not a an intellectual understanding, but it's uh, it's like a, a faculty or a capacity of the mind, you know, just like intelligence, for example. And and wisdom is is the capacity to not conceive of something, to be something what it is not. And you know, we have very strong developed tendencies which constantly are kicking in, you know, and and giving its input from past experience and then projecting that onto the future. And through developing wisdom, you know, that intense, those intense habits, they get slowly but surely, you know, they get worn down more and more. And those, and that, and those four things, when developed and practiced a lot, are the following. The first one is association with good people. Second one is hearing the true teaching in terms of complete. And then careful attention is number three. And number four is practicing the teaching in accordance with the teaching. So I'm just going to speak to those four points because I thought that's a, you know, a good way also to consider one's practice when one goes back tomorrow. And the first one is about associ associating with like-minded, good-hearted people, you know, who encourage one in practicing and supporting, you know, to let go, basically, to have confidence in, in the teaching and to really live accordingly. And, you know, if we have if we live together with people who are on the same track, it is much, much easier, of course. And uh, if we, you know, that is one chant we were doing, the, the highest blessing chant, one of the stances is to not associate with foolish people. And that might sound a little bit judgmental, but what's meant is, you know, with people who, who pull, an, uh, pull us in the wrong direction. And it's not only that we need to put effort into practice, but then also you know, put in extra effort to withstand the influence of uh, you know, people who, who are not interested you know, in uh, developing wisdom. So that is the first of the four things. And then the second one is... Uh, you know, having the complete teaching in terms of the Noble Eightfold Path, for example, you know, having all of the eight 
legs of the noblet of the noblet for path because it's it's you know not very attractive for one for certain people you know to to uh, especially you know when it comes to ethics that can be considered not very interesting and then you know there are certain ways of of imparting the teaching which goes around those areas and then meditation is just much less effective if effective at all and uh, so it's it's very important to have the complete authentic teaching not in the sense of you know this is the only true teaching but if we are speaking about the teaching of the buddha it has to be you know the whole noble eightfold path not just a few parts of it the interesting bits like right view and right uh, intention and maybe right and samadhi and all of those things but if there is the right action and right speech and right livelihood isn't part of it then it won't really fly and maybe also not sell that well but that's for us it is it's not a problem <laughs> and so not a watered down version of the teaching that won't really do it and then the third thing is careful attention and that is to be understood in in the way of that it has to be a continuous continuous attention not just you know paying attention when we feel like it or when it's when we like it but especially you know paying attention when it's when it's difficult you know if there's a lot of aversion to paying attention then uh, it's very important to notice that and you know increase one's um, mindfulness and this continuity is, is important because wisdom arises from a continuous application of the teachings in our daily lives not just you know when we are sitting but in our lives that's where it really can teach us a lot in our relationships with others in particular so this continuity is important and the fourth thing is practicing the teaching in accordance with the teaching so there's you know the dhamma is a theory and and a template and also a practice and it has you know very specific there's very specific instructions you know and if we put them into into our daily lives the result will be transforming for us and uh, you know what is an information in the beginning becomes knowledge and then through it bringing it into our experience it, it we make it part of our being and then it's it's a knowing which is also a seeing which i've been mentioning a few times this week so it's it's you know the way how we are experiencing our lives is held you know within the wisdom which we have you know gained through living the teaching you know and if we are not putting the teaching into practice in our daily lives that simply means you know we haven't really fully understood it because as soon as we really understand 
we will live accordingly. That's the, the real you know, proof if the practice has been you know, sinking in. And uh, you know, do an act what we know is, is true understanding. And for that, you know, we need not only wisdom, but we also need faith. You know, wisdom is knowing how to respond, and faith would be then to really do it, you know, to really live from that place, to really uh, have the courage to drop the ego and, and to step forward in, in, in living what we, know to, what, is not, what we know to be true. And you know, being able to hold you know, to stay conscious of of you know our maybe very difficult feelings and emotions which will come up but then still step forward in the in what we know is true because courage doesn't really mean that we are not experiencing for example fear or anxiety or you know dread or feeling really stressed but then knowing that this is present and then still responding from wisdom rather than from ego and you know having those four supports will help us to really lift an obelateful path. Association with good people, with spiritual friends, hearing the complete teaching, and being interested in the complete teaching, not only in the interesting bits. Careful attention, you know, continuously, or as continuous as possible, attend to our experience in accordance to the teaching and number four practicing the teaching in accordance with the teaching and the noble eightfold path is is a is just this you know the is a different way of expressing the same how to use everything which is needed in order to live, a, to live a human life and use everything in order to clear and purify the mind and, and live a life which is, you know, bringing us to, to the realization of our highest potential. And in that way, you know, benefiting ourselves and benefiting others. I don't think you know, there's anything better one can do with a human life. So I think that's all I'd like to speak about. Ram Tamatipa.
thinking about what might sustain you in practice as you go from here back to whatever feels like your regular life Um, and thinking about what sustained me for all those years as a lay practitioner Um, I, I decided that I wanted to speak tonight a little bit about touching back into your wholesome intention so that you had some wholesome intention that brought you here to this retreat and helped you to stay here and to put in the attention and the effort and the open ears and open heart that it takes to sit for eight days. So finding ways to touch back into that aspect of your being will be very helpful, I think, in terms of support, long-term support for being able to continue to practice. And when I think about that, I think about the refuges about taking refuge in Buddha, taking refuge in Dhamma, taking refuge in Sangha. You know, one of the most basic of Buddhist practices. We did it every day while you were here, at least once, sometimes several times took refuge in the Triple Gem. And the way of taking refuge, there's a a whole spectrum of ways that people do that. From the very rational, very practical perspective, to the very devotional perspective and all sorts of things in between. But when I think about this word refuge, you know, it literally means like a safe place, right? And And practice is a safe place for us in the sense that it won't lead you wrong. I sometimes think about it as like a place of sanity, actually, in this world, in our lives. a refuge in the sense of a place that we can turn over and over again 
for the kind of grounding and the kind of nourishment and the kind of inspiration that heals. At least I can say for me it has been that way. It's been a very healing journey. So what are some ways that you might take refuge in Buddha? Well, in the Theravada we call this the Buddha Rupa, the form of the Buddha, the material form of Buddha. And having the Buddha in form in your life Should I do something? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Having the Buddha form in your life, Buddha Rupa in your life, can be a very helpful reminder. Right? For one thing, most of the Buddha Rupa that you see looks like a person. Right? The Buddha was a human being. He was a human being who faced very directly his own ignorance and his own suffering. And by so doing, transformed it, transcended it. The Buddha was a human being, who was a person who sat down and just like us experienced a whole array of feelings and thoughts in his inner world. Until he came to a place of peace. And as I said recently, he was a human being who believed deeply in other human beings. He spent 45 years of his life walking from place to place to teach. Walking from place to place and having very face-to-face -face encounters with people like you, and like you, like you. So this is one way of taking refuge in Buddha. As for taking refuge in Dhamma, so Dhamma 
If you look it up in the Pali Dictionary, it has over 20 definitions, many, many different ways of thinking about what this word Dhamma means. Perhaps the most common ones would be the way things really are, or reality, Dhamma as reality, as the laws of nature. Dhamma as the teaching which points to that, the teaching of the Buddha and all of the people who have practiced after him in that way, in his way. So a couple of ways of taking refuge in Dhamma, one is to stay close to nature. Because nature is also teaching the Dhamma. Nature is also demonstrating exactly these principles of reality that we're trying to wake up to. That's one of the beautiful things about coming to this place, right? You come to this place and it has the quiet and the beauty of nature. So, I recommend that you stay close to that if you can. Touch into that as often as you can. And then of course, there is traditional teaching Dhamma, so I sustained my practice for many years by reading lots of books and listening to as many Dhamma talks as I could get my hands on. Back then, my goodness, I have to say this, it was before the World Wide Web. (laughs) Um, In the beginning. But today, I don't need to tell you that we have tremendous access to the Dhamma in terms of the teaching itself, in terms of books and video and audio, lots of ways to experience the teachings. So really, really think about um, Staying close to teachings that inspire you, that light, that fire that we talked about in the Brahma Vihara meditations. What are those teachings? Go find them. And then Taking refuge in Sangha. So the original meaning of Sangha was the Arya Sangha, the noble Sangha, those folks who were Arhats, who awakened, who had the same awakening as the Buddha, slightly different powers, 
but the same awakening. So folks like the Terrys, who have left their poetry for us. So interesting to see what they wrote about. The things that they left behind, the things that they picked up. But interestingly, they didn't say in their poems, oh, I wish that next time I would come back as a different kind of thing, because they are not coming back after that kind of awakening. But even before that, it wasn't about that. It was about this very life. So you might find your inspiration in the Sangha of old, the ancient Sangha. You might find your inspiration in more recent Sangha. Like Dogen from the 13th century. <laughs> or even more recent, right? Contemporary teachers, lots of contemporary teachers. I could rattle off a bunch of names of folks whose books I've read, but it's not really that important who inspired me. It's more important that you find who it is that inspires you. But again, maybe an image on, on a, a little home altar, right? To touch into the humanity, the shared humanity of Sangha. Some of you may know the story of Ananda talking to the Buddha about Sangha. He says to the Buddha, Oh, oh, I get it now. I get it. Sangha is half of the spiritual life. And the Buddha says to Ananda, Don't say that, Ananda. Sangha is the whole of the spiritual life. We show up for each other. And demonstrate this path. So feel free to stop by the Vihara anytime. <laughs> Check the calendar first. <laughs> That's true. We're about to go on winter retreat where we don't accept visitors unless you're coming for the meal. But seriously, find your people, yeah? Find your, your Sangha folks. It's important not only because, for one, it's easier to meditate with other people. Studies have shown that, actually. 
physically, that we come into physical alignment with each other when we meditate together in a room. But also because of the mirroring that's possible. Because inevitably, there are aspects of self that we can't see without help. There are aspects of self that others can see about us before we can see it about ourselves. Not always pleasant, but generally useful. That kind of shared reflection, that kind of shared intimacy. When Carol became an Anagarka, we all shared some comments with her, and I told her a little teaching story about some kids who were playing hide-and-go-seek. So, so one kid had found the perfect hiding place. So when it was time to go hide, that kid went and really hid like in a really good hiding place. So the kid who was doing the seeking was looking and looking and looking and looking and finding the other kids, but not finding the one kid who had found the perfect hiding place. And there was an adult who saw this happening, not playing the game, but actually observing the game. And this adult went up to the kid in the perfect hiding place and said, Hey kid, get found. Because that's what it's all about. It's not about finding the perfect hiding place. It's about getting found. Getting found by ourselves. Getting found by the Buddha. Awakened nature, getting found by each other. So I hope you take refuge with you as you go back into the world and that it's a great support to you, to your heart, to your mind, to your body, to the whole path. There's um, something that that has come up.
few times um, in the practice discussions that uh, was kind of on my mind really early on in the retreat and, and uh, for various reasons I didn't bring it in and through the retreat I've been mulling over it and it's kind of got a little bit clearer so I'd like to bring it in now because we're uh, talking about the Noble Eightfold Path and you know I mean on, on one hand it would be nice if I'd have said it at the beginning of the retreat but it's a path that is ongoing so you can take it with you and it's to do with the, the translation of the word Samma so uh, I as instituted uh, read out a list of, of possible translations and, uh, and then there's this word right that is on our little sheet uh, so most commonly we use the words uh, the, most commonly people say right understanding, right thought etc or wise I think wise is not a very it's a bit of a I don't know how people manage to turn summer into wise, but anyway, it doesn't kind of quite work from the Pali perspective, but uh, um, the translation that I heard, and I actually don't know where I heard it from, but it was a, a, a source that was uh, reliable. <laughs> it was uh, <laughs> somebody who studies Pali. Um, was attuned, attuned. And I really like that very much. And I think it came up, I essentially mentioned it in, in relation, like a, a tuning a lute, you know, in relation to right effort. But it kind of fits for the whole, for that word summer. And then uh, just as, as the retreat went on, I, I was thinking about yeah, attuned understanding doesn't kind of quite do it either. So um, what came clearer just over the last few days, really, was to to think of it as like understanding that is attuned to awakening thought that is attuned to awakening speech that is attuned to awakening action that is attuned to awakening livelihood that is attuned to awakening effort that is attuned to awakening mindfulness that is attuned to awakening. Mindfulness is always attuned, really. And concentration or collectedness that is attuned to awakening. So uh, I know that for some people the, the word right created this right and wrong, you know. And am I doing it right or am I wrong? Am I in the, in the seat of the bad one who hasn't been doing it right? You know? so, um, so I think this... this uh, quality of, of attunement can be much, much uh, friendlier. And then if you've ever played a stringed, I mean any, any instrument actually, but a stringed instrument is, is most kind of easy to think of. You know, you have to tune it up before you start. And then and if you go into a, you know, if you're playing an instrument and you've got it nicely tuned and then in, in a room and then you go outside and the climate's different, then it, it'll retune itself. So you have to retune it. And uh, you, really, you don't kind of get angry with the instrument because it's changed. It just needs to be retuned because the conditions have changed. And uh, you know you don't feel like annoyed that the that that this string's too flat. You just recognise, oh, it's flat. Doesn't sound good. 
Let's just tune that up. Boom, 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 boom. And it's like, oh yeah, that's good. And, and there's a, and, and you kind of know, you can feel it when it's got to the right, the right note, the right, when it's tuned just right. And, uh, and then when you, when you tune all the strings just right, then you can make really beautiful music. You know, it's, it's, it's delightful, it can be. And, uh, and when it's all, you know, too sh- when, it, when things are too sharp, it's going to sound a bit painful. And it's the same with, uh, with these qualities, you know, if, if we're too tight around it all, trying to get it all right, you've got to do it right, you've got to do it right, then it's going to be painful and, and, and stressful. And if it's too loose, you know, flat, then uh, you're not going to get anything much going. So just finding that, that attunement to these qualities that we live uh, so that our life becomes attuned to awakening. And then recognizing when it isn't. So, you know, just like I say about the instrument, if, it, if, if we tune an instrument in here, if I, if I have a, you know, a, a viola and I, I, I tune it in, in here for this climate, then I take it outside. When it gets sharp, it gets sharper, is it when it's cold? Flatter. Flatter when it gets cold. Okay, so it's going to get flatter. I always feel more sharp. Um, so, um, and that's kind of how it is with, with, with these qualities. You know, there might, we might be in a situation that's like on retreat, you know, where it's like the conditions are like this and it's, and it's not so difficult to, to tune it up and we've got it maybe by now kind of quite nicely tuned, some of it. And then we go home, <laughs> and conditions are very different, and it all kind of goes wonky. And then we maybe feel like, oh gosh, well, you know, it's all a waste of time, and I wish I'd never. Then maybe I was just, you know, I never really had it down in the first place. But actually, just the conditions have changed, so we need to retune things. And uh, and that's kind of ongoing. We have to keep assessing, you know. What, what, what's going on, what are the challenges, um, what are the supports, and, and, uh, and keep retuning our way of living in, in relation to the, the conditions that we're in. So uh, I kind of felt like I, did, I, didn't, I wanted to say that before we, we ended, even though I kind of now, I do wish I'd said it in the beginning, but it's good to say it at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and and then somebody slipped me a note, and I, I don't know who it is actually, but I kind of feel like I, sh- I should bring it in. And I, I'm not sure whether I can answer it or not, but I just feel it, it deserves being read. So the question is, did the Buddha offer any teachings on loneliness, isolation, and craving connection? Something I struggle with and was hoping to use the practice to help me find equanimity, especially when craving connection, because the desperation can lead to connection, um, because the desperation can lead to connection in 
uh, that are connections that are unfulfilling or sometimes unwholesome. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, the Buddha, um, he t- I mean, as Venerable Dhammadipa mentioned just now, the, the Buddha speaks about the importance of, of good companions, that we need, we really need good companions on the path. And without that, um, it's, it's very, very difficult to make one's way on this path, partly because we, we, we don't have any mirroring, you know, we can't see what we're doing well, what we're not doing well, we're just in our own little bubble. And partly just because we're human beings, you know, we need, we need a little friendly encouragement. Um, so part of it is, is um, I think that also that, that sweet story at the end, you know, being willing to be found. Because um, sometimes the isolation comes from we're not quite willing to be found. We don't really want to expose ourselves or that people know how we are. Or, or maybe inside we don't really feel we haven't befriended ourselves. So we, we don't quite dare to fully befriend someone else. So uh, I think this this yeah, that to, to really consciously befriend the many parts of ourselves that, that get pushed into the corner or into the closet or into the... Yeah, out of the picture. To, to bring them in and befriend them. And uh, they're not always what we want to find. You know, we don't always want those things that are in here. But they, here they are. So let's uh, bring an attitude of kindness. Ajahn Sumedho used to talk about um, the orphans of consciousness. Those those parts that we we don't want to allow to be conscious. So we we disown them, and then that they they're all sort of here, waiting, looking for their. Where they, for their belonging, looking to be to be met. So if we can um, bring in the orphans of consciousness, or, or liberate the orphans orph- orph- of consciousness, that's sort of the way he would put it, by by allowing them to, to become conscious, uh, that's a really important part of befriending ourselves. And as we befriend ourselves, it becomes easier to befriend others or to accept friendship, to be vulnerable enough, vulnerable enough to enter into friendship with others. Because uh, isolation isn't, isn't uh, necessarily about being alone, and loneliness isn't necessarily about being alone. One can be isolated and lonely in, in the midst of many people. And one can be physically alone and feel completely content and, and, and full. So it's, uh, it is about bringing in the, the many parts of ourselves and, and having the, the supports around us to, 
to do that in a way that doesn't feel uh, too scary. So you don't want to make it too hard. You need something uh, like something friendly, something soft, something warm, in order to meet something that's a little bit more challenging. So you kind of balance those a bit. And uh, yeah, the Buddha speaks about the, the importance of friendship, and he also is, speaks about the import, importance of solitude, actually. There's quite a lot in the suttas about the importance of solitude. But uh, it's not a solitude that's, that's uh, cut off or isolated, but it's a solitude that one takes when one's ready to take it. Uh, because, um, you know, the, the, the aversion and the greed and the confusion has, is, uh, has subdued enough, or is, is, has lessened enough, that when you're alone, you're alone with the wholesome qualities that you've cultivated, not just all of the, you know, all the other stuff. So, although he really encourages solitude, he also, there's also a few places where people want to go off in solitude, you know, they're a bit like an a eager young monk who wants to go off in solitude and practice alone in the forest, because that's where it's really at, and, and then he's like, no, no, not yet, and then like, no, but I really want to, no, no not yet. Well, come on, you know, it's what it's really about, I really want, so it's like, I think three times he says no, and then eventually he's like, go on then. And so the guy, this young guy, goes off in the forest, and, and he's just assailed with all of the, you know, the, the greed, hatred, and delusion of his mind. So he's off in the forest with with all of these these uh, unfriendly characters that he's brought along with him. And then he comes back and says, "Oh my goodness, <laughs> I should have listened to the Buddha." <laughs> So, um, so we don't want to you know, try and follow some ideal and, and make ourselves do something before we're ready to do it. But uh, aloneness is, can be very peaceful when one's ready to be alone. And, uh, but to do it too soon, it can be quite, quite harmful. So, uh, so I hope whoever wrote this will... Um, allow themselves to be found. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.